The most vulnerable people in a nuclear war, or in any war, are the very young and the very old. And that's why our various Cold War evacuation schemes would label these people as priority classes and aim to get them out of target areas. Although, if the very young and the very old were evacuated and did survive the initial nuclear attack, then we know that their problems were only just beginning, as the effects of fallout would be particularly merciless on those age groups. But at least, on paper, the authorities were aware of their unique vulnerability. No such luck for teenagers. Some versions of Britain's constantly changing evacuation schemes did stretch the definition of priority class to include adolescents. Glasgow's evacuation plans for 1956 aimed to evacuate all teenagers under 18 in order to, quote, save as much of the young life of the country as possible. That quote reaches to the heart of what we're discussing today, to save as much of the young life of the country as possible. Why? Why are you so intent on saving the young? Is it benevolence? That's nice. Is it just human nature to save the wee ones? Or is it something colder and more practical? We've looked previously at the various problems with Cold War evacuation in Britain, and there are millions of them, so I won't go over it again. But let's zoom in on one, and that's the economic impact. If we were locked in a period of dreadful rising tension with the Soviets, and nuclear war was looming, and your civil servants have a nice, slick evacuation scheme already on paper, then there will be a temptation... Well, more than that, perhaps a screaming demand to get the nippers and the mothers and the frail out of the cities. But one of the problems with enacting that evacuation scheme, even if it works flawlessly, is that you're emptying your cities of huge chunks of the population. And that is going to have an economic impact. Now, your mothers and babies and old folk probably won't be working and therefore won't be essential to the ticking over of the economy, but their fathers and husbands and sons will be. And I'm referring to the old-fashioned notion of men being at work, women at home with the kids, because this uh, document we're looking at today does refer to the 1950s. So if you don't scoop your evacuees off to perceived safety, no such thing as safety in nuclear war, of course, in Britain, but if you don't get them out to perceived safety, 
then there is the temptation that, well, the men, the workers, might do it for you. Those essential workers might down tools so that they can carry out a private evacuation of their pregnant wife or their frail parents or their terrified kids. On the other hand, if your evacuation scheme works too well, if it is efficiently and smoothly and visibly emptying the cities, then who could blame the men who are left behind from feeling a bit aggrieved? Why has everyone else been scooted away to safety but not us? So you have two problems here. If your evacuation scheme is not good enough, the men might take it upon themselves to safeguard their families. But if it's too good, then men might see themselves as abandoned, being left behind, vulnerable. They might feel resentful. They're being left behind in the cities as a sacrifice so that the economy won't suffer. This is especially true if they see other working-age men being evacuated. For example, if we have a business or an industry which is based on knowledge, we might be able to evacuate that, that industry, insurance or accounting or the civil service, something like that. Whereas blokes in factories and at the docks or the power stations, well, those things can't be moved. So evacuation isn't just about removing people from target areas, it's about making sure those left behind in the cities are able and willing to stay there. So let's imagine a 1950s Britain which has successfully evacuated the children, the mothers, the frail and the old, and the adolescents, which is teenagers up to the age of 18. Now, hang on, some might say. All those men who are left behind in the cities told to stay at work They're told, keep working. If you flee, then the economic life of the country grinds to a halt and the baddies have beaten us without ever dropping a single bomb. If keeping these big strong men at work is so crucial to the life of the nation, then why do we have these equally big and strong 18-year-old lads evacuated and sitting about in the countryside doing nothing? Why can't they stay in the cities and lend a hand to keep the economy going? An evacuation scheme which removes all adolescents will mean that you have some teenagers, boys and girls, who are strong and healthy and capable and tall and could easily put in a shift in the city, at the factories, at the power stations. And so, to answer that question, or perhaps to fend off that question, attention turned to whether we could indeed create work for these capable strong adolescents who are evacuated because they are, after all, in a world poised on the brink of war, a spectacular resource. And that's why I said in the intro, are we evacuating adolescents because of benevolence, because they are, after all, just little kids? Or is it simply to safeguard a valuable human resource for the country's recovery? Especially given that if the bomb drops and... All your blokes who are still attending work in the target areas have been annihilated. Evacuating adolescents might simply have been a way to protect and preserve a pool of labour, which can replace all your lost men from the target areas. So 
So we turn to the archives today for a look at a file I found called The Role of Juveniles in War. It's from the 1950s and it lists suggested jobs for these young people after nuclear attack. Now, because it's from the 50s, we must bear in mind two things. One, that we were still close, very close to the Second World War here when this was written. And also, the planners who were writing these papers and making these suggestions didn't have to consider fallout because we are still in the atomic age, not the thermonuclear age. Of course, once the hydrogen bomb comes along, you'll see that the notion of sending adolescents out into the city to work as messengers, for example, it would be useless because everyone would have to remain undercover. But we are still here, early Cold War, atomic age, fallout is a minor concern. It's nothing like the massive blanketing hell of fallout that we would get with the hydrogen bomb. So the file proposes a few jobs for juveniles in nuclear war. And they class juveniles here as boys and girls aged 15 to 18. The first job is, as I just mentioned, carrying messages. It says, boys and girls to participate during non-raid periods. Boys only to participate during raids without age distinction. Okay, so a nice bit of gallantry there from the civil defence planners. They won't send girls out during raids. Gallantry or just old-fashioned thinking or insulting. However you want to see it, the fact is that they wouldn't send girls out during a raid to carry messages. Now, the idea of using young teenagers for this purpose in wartime is not new. It happened in Britain during the Second World War, notably with the police auxiliary messengers. These were teenage boys under 18 who had their own bikes and who would work for their local police as messengers when the phone lines were down. They would go out during and after raids. Now, I find it hard to see how this would work in a city under atomic attack. If we look at the streets of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it's hard to see how a boy on a bike is supposed to manoeuvre his way around the streets after an attack like that. And that is, of course, no disrespect meant to those cities. That is just one atomic bomb. It's not an atomic war. So a city subject to an atomic attack, surely the place would just be clogged with rubble. The roads would be impassable. The roads would have vanished under all the rubble. And uh, if we turn back to the archives, they talk about boys going out to carry messages during raids. During Nuclear attack? Are you kidding me? This implies that they have not yet grasped what an atomic attack would be like. But of course, in the early Cold War, there was always the thinking that... And this, this, sorry, this applied even during the later Cold War. There was the thinking that it would be rare, spectacularly rare, for a nuclear war to begin out of the blue with that infamous four-minute warning just blaring out of nowhere, just interrupting a peaceful, ordinary afternoon. That would be rare. What is more likely, according to planners, was that we will have a period of tension which breaks into nuclear war or a period of conventional war which then escalates to nuclear. So when they say raids here, they could, to give them the benefit of the doubt, they could be referring to conventional bombing, ordinary raids as we saw in the Second World War. 
But does it not seem naive to assume that your next war will be the same as the last war? But again, as so often happens in early British civil defence planning, we cling far too much to the experience of the Blitz. A boy on a bike can't make his way through the atomic rubble of a city. But of course, it might have been feasible if we had conventional bombing only, at least in the initial stages, or if we're talking about adolescents sending messages and working in a small town or village which hasn't been touched by atomic attack, or at least who's escaped the worst of it. But with all those um, (laughs) complications and concerns and guesses about what it's going to be like, it seems it would have been easier, or a better idea at least, to use homing pigeons to carry messages, as again we did during the war. At least pigeons can fly over the rubble. I won't need to worry about punctures and chains coming loose. Britain actually awarded 32 pigeons with a medal, known as the Dickin Medal, which is awarded to animals who worked during the war. The PDSA uh, described the Dickin Medal as the animal equivalent of the Victoria Cross. And the medal says on one side, for gallantry, and on the other side, we also serve. And I can't let this go without a shout out for the dogs. I'm a dog owner. The Dickin Medal has been awarded 36 times to dogs. And only 32 times to pigeons. So nuts to the pigeons. So a proposal to use teenagers in the exact same role they held during the Blitz, jumping on their bike to carry messages when the phone lines are down, I say this would be near impossible in any city which had suffered atomic attack. (laughs) But consider also the the changing attitudes of parents. We hear these days of helicopter parents and how kids don't play out in the streets as they used to and how everyone is mollycoddled, etc. So how would more modern parents react when little Jimmy jumps on his bike and shouts over the wail of the siren, Bye, Mum! I don't think parents these days would allow that to happen. The next job we see proposed for our teenagers is clerical work in civil defence headquarters and in public information centres. This includes typing and telephonist duty. Well, your telephonist work might be redundant because, as we just discussed, with the need to send boys out as messengers, the phone lines could all be down. And if you're in a city, what civil defence headquarters, what public information centres are they even going to still be standing? So as before, this job only works if you're referring to light conventional bombing, or relatively light conventional bombing, or operations in a small town which has survived and escaped the worst of it. A third job, and this is the one which makes sense to me the most out of this list. Third is assistance in the care and movement of evacuees. And yet the file says this is of doubtful value. I don't see why. I've read of plans to use scouts and guides to meet the trains of evacuees. And I see no reason why disciplined and mature boys and girls couldn't be on hand at the church hall or community centre or train station to dish out cups of tea, give directions or help escort groups to their billets 
or even just if you take it down to the most basic level of, of helping with evacuees, even just to talk to the crying children, give them a hanky and a, a, a piece of chocolate. The most basic thing, why not? And of course, this might work, whether the, those mature adolescents are at the receiving end, meeting the evacuees, or on the evacuee trains themselves. And the next few jobs on the list are all quite similar. It's offering assistance in either looking after the homeless, him helping the sick and injured, or helping out in the feeding centres. And again, I see no reason why that wouldn't work if the adolescents were disciplined and community-minded and willing to help. The plans for these endeavours, feeding centres, looking after the homeless, etc., these plans all have responsible, trained adults in charge, usually the women of the Royal Voluntary Service or, in the early Cold War, the Civil Defence Corps. And I imagine if these adults were handed a batch of mature teenagers who need do nothing more strenuous than hand out food and hot drinks, uh, assist in organising bedding and bandages, uh, why not? Although, as ever, this all depends on a whole cascade of things, such as the atomic attack being relatively light, or at least this happening in a town which has been untouched, and all the civil defence plans being able to spring neatly into action from paper to reality. There's no point in having some keen and sensible teenagers turn up at the church hall eager to help if no one is there, because the plans have collapsed at the first whiff of reality. The file also contains a cheerful, jaunty note which just infuriates me because it seems to come from absolutely maddening naivety. Naivety for which there is no excuse, given that, as mentioned, we are still very close to the Second World War here. So anyone who's working in civil defence in the early 50s, we can assume, would have had direct experience of the horror of the Second World War. So where does this naivety come from? I'll read a sentence which really annoyed me. He says, Even in raided areas, there will be plenty of post-raid tasks to be done, and every pair of hands will be valuable. By this stage, everyone knows what one single atomic bomb had done to Hiroshima and again to Nagasaki. So why do you keep talking as though we're still living through the Blitz? Even if we first encountered conventional bombing only, and even if, giving this man the benefit of the doubt, he's referring to nothing worse than conventional bombing, this is a new era. It's the 1950s, we're in the Cold War. It's a new era, and we have a new enemy. So why are we still preparing to fight the last war? I want to give a special shout out today to Hat Green Nuclear Bunker in Cheshire. They are patrons of this podcast and I've visited them um, twice, I think. Anyway, today they reopen after lockdown and there's lots of talk in the media about supporting your local pubs, your local cafes, but let's not forget our local nuclear bunkers. Hat Green operates as a museum, and as of today, they're back. You might also like to know that I'll be on the Fighting on Film podcast on Wednesday. The podcast discusses war films, and they invited me on to discuss the war game. So if that sounds like something you'd like, then do look up Fighting on Film. Uh, Speaking of the war game, the Fighting on Film guys recommended an old book to me about documentary filmmaking. 
because it includes an interview with Peter Watkins about the making of the war game. And I was able to buy that and pay a very high delivery fee thanks to my patrons. Uh, the book uh, is especially valuable to me as I tried recently to get an interview with Peter Watkins for my book, but he uh, refuses to give interviews these days, which is absolutely fine, of course, he's not obliged to anyone. So thank you to my patrons for helping me get that book, which will give us an extra insight in my own book to the making of the war game. I've got plenty of info on the making of threads because I was lucky enough to get an interview with Mick Jackson, but uh, Peter Watkins is a bit more elusive. So thank you to all my patrons. If you want to become a podcast patron and make a donation each month to help pay for things like that, my, my research costs, buying that book, buying my access to newspaper archives, for example, and also the running of the podcast, um, please take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And this week, let me say thanks to my patrons Chris Sunman, Anna Brotherton, Mark Brooker, and Crystal of Truth. Thank you everyone for listening, and I'll be back next week.